Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. So I would just ask if you would just close your eyes and bow your head and join with me as I I pray. Dear glorious Jehovah, my covenant God, all thy promise in Christ Jesus are yea and amen, and all shall be fulfilled. Thou hast spoken them, and they shall be done, commanded, and they shall come to pass. Yet I have often doubted thee, and have lived at times as if there was no God. Lord, forgive me that death in life, when I have found something apart from thee, when I have been content with temporal things. But through thy grace I have repented. Thou hast given me to read my pardon in the wounds of Jesus. My soul does trust in him, my God incarnate, the ground of my life, the spring of my hope. Teach me to be resigned to thy will, to delight in thy law, and to have no will but thine to believe that everything thou dost is for my good, and help me to leave my concerns in thy hands. For thou hast power over evil, and you bring us from it an infinite progression of good until thy purposes are fulfilled. Bless me with Abraham's faith that staggers not at promises through unbelief. May I not instruct thee in my troubles, but glorify thee in my trials. Grant me a distinct advance in the divine life, May I reach a higher platform, leave the mists of doubt and fear the valley, and climb to the hilltops of eternal security in Christ by simply believing he cannot lie or turn from his purpose. Give me the confidence I ought to have in him who is worthy to be praised and who is blessed forevermore. And God's people said in the name of Christ, amen. What a great God. He is faithful. And his providence and his promises are forever. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 37. As we look at the faithfulness of God has been our broad theme as we look at Genesis. Today we're going to look at the faithfulness of God even through evil. In Genesis, we have found that God is displaying his character through the world that he has created and in his interaction with the human race. We've been looking at these last four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We have learned how God has worked through Abraham and his family to accomplish his purpose in sending a Savior to redeem the world. The first promise of Genesis 3.15. The narrative of the story in Genesis is moving from the call of Abraham to the creation of the nation of Israel that will lead to the chosen seed and we find in the Gospels. Keith Krell writes that the focus of Genesis is on God's choice and his care of his chosen people. And we're getting closer to see that chosen people of Israel as we come to the end of Genesis and the life of Joseph and the sons of Jacob. We discussed this past few weeks in how Genesis and the faithfulness of God is demonstrating God's providence in the creation and life of his people is when Wayne Grudemans writes that the doctrine of providence is that God is continually involved with all created things. And that's something that you and I have to understand. 
We truly want you to know that God has a providential hand on all things even today. So he's involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties in which he created them. We are here and we can stand here because he is maintaining things as he's created them. Number two, he cooperates with created things in every action and directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And then thirdly, directs them to fulfill his purposes. So you and I are in the midst of God's providence. Our lives are full of God's providential acts that demonstrates his faithfulness to us. As we remember, as we continue our study in Genesis, we need to remember that Genesis is not a standalone book. It's the first chapter of a story. It's a story of the Bible. It's a story of Christ. It's the story of redemption. And you and I find our story within these pages as itself. In Genesis, we stand on one side of redemption. You and I stand on the other side, waiting for the final redemption. What we've seen through Genesis, it's demonstrating that God is sovereign over seemingly random things, as much as when someone's coming to a water station or someone is in need. We see it as random things. He's sovereign over the heart of the most powerful person in the land, as we shall see later today. He is sovereign over our daily lives and the plans. He's sovereign over life and death, marriage, pregnancy, birth order, and even the promise of sending his son. Nothing is left out of God's purview when it comes to his providence. God's providence, as I said, is used to show God's faithfulness in accomplishments and purposes and keeping his promises. Keith Carell observes that God works through the weakness of sinful men to accomplish his purpose. And as we've worked our way through the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and through his children, we see that God definitely does use flawed men and women, which actually should encourage us that we too can be used of God. As we come to Genesis 37 through 50, we begins with Joseph at the age of 17. And it's going to follow his life through the next 13 years as he leads to his ascension as governor over Egypt at the age of 30. These last 24 chapters can be broken into six main things. Joseph's dreams, Joseph's betrayed, Joseph's enslavement, his imprisonment, his ascension, and then his protection. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning as we begin to close this chapter of Genesis and we truly want to understand your providence. We truly want to see your faithfulness on display. And we thank you for your word that demonstrates your love for your people. And the way that you use even people who once were not your people. People who we would not think would be called. Lord, let us find encouragement that as flawed as they are, Lord, you could still use us. I pray as we open your word that we understand it that you'd give us your Holy Spirit, that we not quench the Spirit, but Lord, that we be open to what the Spirit may call us to do, that we may respond accordingly. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to give you four observations about the passage. And as we go through it, I pray that you read the scripture. We had given it to you in advance to do so. I think many of you know the story of Joseph, even if it's in the broad details. 
If you haven't read it, you've probably seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, so you're pretty much under control there and understand. But we're going to give you more a synopsis as we go through. So if you want to take your Bible and turn to Genesis 37, we're going to look at some chapters and we're going to kind of go through just an overview of what we're looking there. In chapter 37, the first observation I want to make where Joseph's brothers' hatred and their jealousy for them lead them to conspire to kill him. Look at chapter 37 and the first four verses. Jacob, it says, lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhal and Zilphath, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. In verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. We find now Jacob is now is back and living in the land of Canaan. He now has 12 sons and an untold number of daughters. The rest of Genesis is going to focus on these 12 men with Joseph being the center. He is the 11th child, the firstborn of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved, his favorite wife. And what we see here tragically is that Jacob repeats the sin of his father by showing favoritism towards one of his sons to the neglect of others. In verse 4 of this chapter, we see that that favoritism, that love, begins to sow seeds of hatred and jealousy towards him by his brothers. We also learn that Joseph has the gift of dreams and interpreting dreams. And in that, he gives dreams in which it seems as his brothers and his family will one day bow down to him. And as we may see, this also causes great tension in the family. And many of you know the story that after he produced the dreams, Joseph one day goes far from his father in search of his brothers sent out by his dad. He says, find out how your brothers are doing. And as he comes, we see that his brothers desire to kill him. This is their chance. And as they take him, they throw him in the pit, wondering what they're going to do. The oldest, Reuben, decides that he wants to try to save him. But before he can do that, caravan of Ishmaelites come by. And they wind up selling him into slavery. Their greed and their hatred and their jealousy, they leads them to sell Joseph. And others say, why should I kill him? We ought to also make some money off of him. And then we see that their guilt leads them to cover up their crime with lies. And Jacob, the deceiver, is deceived in thinking that his youngest son or his 11th son, his favorite, has been killed by a wild animal. This family is continuing the dysfunction of Isaac's family that Jacob grew up in. I don't think this is a family that you and I would want to be part of, but this is the promised family. It was from Jacob that the Messiah would come. And it's going to be through these 12 sons that we will have eventually what you and I know as the 12 tribes of Israel, in which Jesus eventually would come through the tribe of Judah, the promised seed. But in here we see that their hatred and jealousy leads them to conspire and eventually not only to try to kill their brother, but to sell him into slavery. It's not a very good beginning. It's not the way that we think the story would continue. This is a family that's supposed to be blessed. This is going to be a family that, in which nations are going to bless and they're going to own the land. But here we see Joseph all of a sudden is in a caravan finding his way 
outside the land. In chapter 39, the second observation, we see that he's sold into Egypt. And he's tested by Potiphar's wife, his owner. In verse 1 of chapter 39, it tells us, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. No longer is he in the land of promise. But he's in a very world power at that time. And Potiphar, who's an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the garden of Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishlamites who had brought him down there. Not the beginning of a young man that we would expect. But what we see as we continue in verse 2 through 6 is that Joseph is not left in Egypt. God does not take his favor away from him. But in other words, God actually shows him favor in this tragic incident. As we look at verse 2 of that chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. He was not forgotten. Maybe betrayed by his brothers, maybe discarded by his brothers, mourned by his father, but yet not forgotten by God. And I think there's an encouragement for you and I. Because many times in our life, our family is not all that we want it to be. The relationship may not be, but God does not forget. Amen? He sees us where we are. But as we continue in verse 39, look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, even as a slave, as he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord, look at that verse, caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. God, the providential, over all even the smallest things. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time he made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and his fields. In verse 6, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Small kind of little, gives us a little description of it, but it leads to what's going to happen next. But we see Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. And for you and I, we would almost think, well, well maybe Joseph now is going to be the, the one in which the promised seed will come. Now we know that that's not who it will come through. But Joseph has a special place, not only in Jacob's heart, but in God's heart. As God now takes him from the land, makes him a slave, but yet does not forget him, but also causes him to prosper and succeed. However, we think, okay, well, things are looking up at least a little bit better. At least things are not as bad as they could be. He could be making pyramids. He could be working in some type of pit. He could be doing so much more awful things than being just a steward of a house in which he really has the rule of over everything. And actually, he might be in a better position than he was when he was with his father, where he was the youngest of all of 11 brothers who hated him. He at least now was in a place where people kind of liked him and cared for him, and he was respected. However, God's providential hand wasn't done, was it? Because even as things were successful and things were going right, and things were going well, in comes Potiphar's wife, who, seeing that he's handsome in form and appearance, desires to have him, and tempts him to say, come, lie with me, be with me. Let's have this affair. But Joseph, being a right man and a man who loves God, recognizes this would not be right, says no, and he's tested by her. Potiphar's wife's desire 
eventually leads to Joseph's false imprisonment. As we see that he goes to her and she comes to him and she says, lie with me, grabs his coat, she says no, and we all know the story. He runs away, but in the, in the essence, leaves his coat there with her. And knowing what's happening, she winds up lying about what happened, saying that he had attacked her and that he had molested her. He winds himself now in prison. From being the favorite in Canaan to being in slavery to working his way up to master of the house back to something worse, prison. And Joseph's master says, took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners are confined, and he was there in prison. It seems like his life continues, seems to, to be good, then, then goes to worse, and then back to a little bit better, and now into a worse situation. But as we look in chapter 39, that even in jail, the Lord does not forget Joseph. And again, causes him to prosper. Look at verse 19 of chapter 39. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The same favor God showed him in the house of Potiphar, he showed in prison. The location was different. Maybe the accommodations were a little bit different. But once again, Joseph winds up becoming favored with someone and winds up running the prison. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. In chapter 40, we see now things are okay in prison. He, life must have been better. He probably had better food, maybe had better accommodations than some of the other prisoners. But once again, he's tested. In chapter 40, we see that a cupbearer and the baker of the pharaoh are wound up in jail. And they have this dream and they're, they're distressed and they want to know what's going on. And Joseph, being in charge of the men, seeing that they're distressed, is trying to find out what's going on. He needs to meet this need. And in verse 8 of chapter 40, they said to him, We've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. What a great place to be if you need an interpreter. Joseph, who's already been known as an interpreter, said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Isn't that interesting? Even your dreams are not random little chemical things, but even they are the providence of God in which God speaks and reveals himself. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Verse 23, we see that he tells them, one is good, one is bad, one is restored to his position, the other has his head lopped off. And Joseph says, just don't forget me. But in verse 23, we see that the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now I can imagine now, let's take a moment, take a breath, as we go through this story kind of quickly, as you can almost imagine what's going through Joseph's life. Have you ever gone through ups and downs in your life? Wild swings when things are going well, but then all of a sudden the bottom drops out? I mean, have you ever had that type of thing where things seem to be going good, and then the bottom drops out? And then you see you work yourself up to this point and then something else. It seems like our lives are that type of valleys. And we think God has blessed us, God has shown his favor, but then something else. And sometimes, as we see in Joseph, none of these things are really anything that he's done. The evil that's coming in his life has been things that have been outside of him. They haven't been really things that he's done to anyone. It's not his own sin or the consequences of his sin, but it seems like it's the greed, the jealousy, the adulterous heart or the desire of other people continue to lead him into places where he does not want to be. 
Yet in every dark and turn, it seems that God gives him a light. But yet once again, there seems to be a light at this tunnel. He helps this man and he says, you're a man of influence. Do not forget me, but plead my case to Pharaoh. Yeah, he was, you know, the top guy in the prison, but he's still in prison. He's not a guard, he's still a prisoner. And he thinks, maybe this is my way out. But yet, once again, years go by and he's left in that prison. Have you ever had that in your life? Where you feel like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing what I believe God wants me to do. But yet, every time it seems like you're getting there, just doesn't follow through. Have you ever begin just to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God? Because in the same time, wouldn't Joseph be thinking back, when I was 17, didn't I have a dream in which all my brothers would bow down to me? Didn't I have a dream once in which my brothers and my sisters and, and even my mom and dad will bow down to me? What's going on here? You ever think that God just hates you? Or he must have something against you? Pray that you haven't, but I think there's some of us that sometimes do. We feel like God must have a grudge. What is it that I'm doing wrong? I can imagine Joseph might have struggled maybe with some of these types of things. But in chapter 41, things finally turn for Joseph. As most of us know the story, then Pharaoh begins to have dreams. And he too is distressed about him. He asks his wizards and his wise men, interpret this dream. No one's able to do it. And eventually that cupbearer who is there eventually remembers and says, Aha! Hey, I remember someone who interpreted my dreams. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 41 in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. And I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can. Verse 16, Joseph answered, Pharaoh does not me, but God will give you a favorable answer. Many of us know the end of the story. He gives him a favorable answer. He tells him what he needs to do. You need to do this seven years of good, then seven years of famine. He says, what should I do then? Joseph, being wise, maybe God had already given him a clue of what's going to happen. He knows how to answer. He tells him, this is what you need to do. And Pharaoh turns around and says, then you are the man to do it. And as we know the story, as we go on, Joseph winds up, becomes second in command of all of Egypt. Control of all of its food sources and all of its resources and putting people to work. And eventually we know that he winds up facing his brothers in the time of famine. But what we see is through all of his trials, God gives Joseph favor with authority and he prospers even in adversity. Joseph's life plan to get to where he is is probably not the way that you and I mostly would take it. But eventually God gets him where he wants to go. As we look at this, I want to just look at some things that we need to understand. Why is it that Joseph's life has to go through this? Why could God just done it a different way and made things all perfect? Why did he have to go through almost death, through all this hatred? Why did he have to go into slavery and then into prison and, and through all these things? Well, first we need to realize that evil abounds 
in this fallen world. Sin abounds in the heart of men, in the heart of women. The Bible says that the creation itself is subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Evil is in this world. All of us are tainted by evil in our families, in our relationships, in our work relationships, and in life. Bad things will happen. Evil just seems to get its tentacles in all of our lives, does it not? There's no one, it seems, that's immune. Each and every time we turn on the radio or watch the news or open a paper, we see this type of thing in people's life. Bad things happen to good people. Job learned that, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Bad things are going to happen to even those who try to do good. Joseph here is not given any type of way. He doesn't really give us that he's prideful. But yet, in all of his things, he winds up being hurt by the evil of others. And so here today, you may find yourself without a job, maybe with struggles, and maybe some of it is not of your own. It's not consequences of your own sin. Maybe it's a medical, maybe it's a health, something you've been born with, something that happened to you, but we need to realize that bad things are going to happen even to people who are good by worldly standards. But what you and I can be encouraged as we look at this life of Joseph is that God subjugates this evil for his good purposes. Is God uses that evil for his good purposes. Take your Bibles, you still have it, Genesis chapter 45. For now we get to the place where his brothers now work and find their way to Joseph. They're hungry, there's a famine looking for food, knowing that it's there. They don't know Joseph is still alive. They believe he's just a slave somewhere, maybe not even alive after about 13 years or so. And they find out Joseph finally reveals who he is. We know the story. And all of a sudden, as it comes near the end, they're now afraid for their lives. They now realize here's Joseph, the most important man in Egypt besides Pharaoh himself, the one who controls all things. If anyone is going to get revenge or justice Joseph is the one and these men know that they're guilty before him and as we come they eventually approach him but look at Joseph's attitude look at the wisdom the faith that he has in chapter 45 of Genesis verse 7 Joseph says and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God in his providence knows that he calls Abraham out. He gives him one son, Isaac, who winds up having two children. He must choose one. Choose wrongly, he does, but God providentially names Jacob the heir. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them they try to kill. He's put away. What's going to happen to these people? God knows a famine is coming up 20 years Later, Joseph realized that God sent him to Egypt to prepare to protect that family. And as we know, later in Genesis, 70 uh, members of Jacob's family winds up going to Egypt, escaping the famine that probably ravaged that land and probably killed many. 
See, God's providential knows what's going to happen, knows what He's decreed, is preparing and protecting that family. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Why? For God knows what He's doing. And God is faithful. The story is ending with Jesus and Jesus on the cross and Jesus resurrected. And here in Joseph, Joseph's play in going through the prison and through the slavery is just another road to what's going to happen in the future. Genesis chapter 50, he goes on once again. In verse 18, Jacob passes away. And now they believe, oh, here's going to happen. Now that our dad's gone, Joseph can do whatever he wants. He just didn't do it because he didn't want his dad to know. But his brothers also came and fell down before Joseph. And they said, behold, we are your servants. They figured, well, we'll become your slaves. Spare us. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for what? Good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We know the story, 70 people go in, and as they come from the Exodus, anyone guesses from 2 million to 3 to 4 million come out of Exodus. It's in the land of Egypt that God preserves them from the famine and prepares them for the promised land. Abraham began as a man with no faith. He was an idol worshiper. Remember when we started in Genesis chapter 12? Yet by God's sovereign choice, he was called out to leave his family, his friends, and his heritage to a land that was not his and had not the money to purchase. God graciously promises to give Abraham land and children that will become fathers of nations and a blessing to all the nations. Abraham begins to grow in his faith, sometimes hesitantly, sometimes in half steps, with some backward steps in between. And then by the time we get to chapter 22, we see that he has a mature faith. The same could be said for Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The thing to understand, though, is that these these men never did see the promised land fulfilled in their lifetime. They never saw the promises of God fulfilled in their lifetime. Jacob died in a country that was not his. Isaac and Abraham died as nomads. And Joseph and his family died in their age, still in a land that did not belong to them. By the end of Genesis, not only do they not own the land, but they have actually abandoned the land and moved to Egypt. Yet they never lost faith. Joseph, in a great testimony of his faith, said to his brothers in chapter 50, look at verse 24, he says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. In verse 25 it says, And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph believed the promises of God even when he was very far from the land and never saw it in his lifetime. He believed God would do it. By faith, Joseph, believing that God was faithful, that God would bring him into land. It seems like Abraham and his children, though, lost it all when they left Canaan. 
As most of us know that eventually the Egyptians forced the children of Israel to become slaves. Not exactly the noble nation that will be a light to the nation they expected. But even then, their enslavement and their eventual exodus is in God's handiwork, is in God's providence. God uses it to prepare the people for what we see in the rest of Scripture. The Westminster Confession characterizes God's decree as this. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably adorn whatsoever comes to pass. What's that saying in Elizabethan language there is God's decree stands. God's providential care covers each and everything of our life. Phil Johnson of Grace Community Church observes in his blog, there were three lessons learned from providence of God. And I put these on the screen here so you can write them down and you can understand and remember them. The first thing to remember about providence, that providence is characterized by many unexpected twists and turns. This reminds us that God's ways are mysterious and beyond human scrutiny. So that all we can know for sure about God's sovereign dealing with us is that his purposes are always righteous. In this case, what happened through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and eventually with Joseph and his brothers and even the tribes down into slavery, it was a righteous and good choice. Often God will intervene in our life in ways that don't instantly appear good to us. And I think Joseph could say, how is this good? I don't know when God finally showed him or revealed to him what his purpose was, but obviously there must have been a point, but there had to have been a time. Why is this happening? I spent some time myself this week just going over the videotape of my own life. In my life, like many of you, there are some things that I truly, truly regret, wish God would not have put in my life. Things that sometimes still... I struggle with and haunt me today. And if I could go back, I would say, I would not do this, or I wish God would not have done that. But yet, there has to come a point in my life that I have to trust that God was righteous and God was loving and bringing me through these because this is what made me the man that I am here today, good or bad. You may be the judge. But I must trust that God loves me. Those are the times when we need to remind ourselves that God's thoughts are higher than ours and His ways are not like ours. But what you and I can be assured of is that He's still working all things together for our good. Amen? His purposes and His strategies are better than the way we would do things. And He hasn't lost control, even if at the moment our world may be seen to be in complete disarray. The second observation he makes about providence, and this is what I shared earlier, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But we should praise him in whatever case. I think of Paul and Silas who are in prison for preaching the gospel. But what do you find them doing? Is it grumbling? Is it complaining? Is it in despair? Is it accusing God of what's going on? No. You find them singing the praises of God. And let me ask you, when you find yourself in the providence of God and it's not the place that you want to be, do you find yourself praising God or questioning God? Doubting God? 
one who is faithful, one who is by faith, one who trusts in the providence of God, recognizes that we should praise him in any way. God doesn't promise that all of his dealings with us will always be pleasant and easy. And there are some of you that have had a life of hard knocks. There are some of you that had a life that many of us could not even understand or comprehend. But even that life is a life given from God. And it's His righteousness, and it's right, and it's good, and it's to bring Him's glory. He assures us that trials and afflictions will be our lot and our portion. That's the life of a Christian. But He also promises grace to endure. And He commands us to trust that His purpose for us is ultimately good. And we must learn to trust in dark times as well as times of good fortune. And then thirdly about God's providence, he says temporal blessings are nothing compared to spiritual blessings. And here's the problem. You and I are so invested in this world of materials that you and I can never get beyond and recognize that we have a heavenly home that's much greater. And that's what we see there in our scripture reading of Hebrews, is even though they saw the land, they saw something greater, a heavenly city, a heavenly land. The promises was a savior. That's what we need. I was thinking about this week, there's so many things going on and everyone's saying this, people need to be cured from this, people need to be delivered from that. And finally, I just told my wife, people really don't need a cure. They need a savior. That's what we need, amen? Would you agree with that? They need a savior. Yes, there are things that strike us with life. There's our addictions, there are problems, there are issues, but we need a Savior to deliver us from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. That's the hope of the gospel. A cure comes and goes. A cure can be good for a while, but there has no eternal value in that. You can be cured of the greatest addictions, but still die and go to hell. And what good is that? We need to realize is that we need to compare the spiritual blessings greater than the material. So let me end with this. If God is providential, even through the evil and the bad things in our life, if I must now accept, all right, as I look at my life, things have not been perfect. Actually, things have been terrible. But yet you're telling me that's God's will for my life? You're asking me to accept this? I am. For that's Scripture. For God is sovereign over all things. Let me share this with you. Your pain and your suffering has a purpose. One pastor said this, God does not waste a hurt. And I believe that's true. 1 Corinthians says, Blessed be the God of Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction." So God doesn't waste a hurt. Your pain and your suffering in your life has a purpose. And I know there's some of you that I can think of, you know, just uh, one here who has a testimony in which she's using her pain and suffering to bring comfort to others. Amen. That's what we're to do. And some of you can help others because of your pain and suffering. Some of you have great testimonies in the fact that you said, this is my life. It's not perfect, but I want to help others to see that God still loves you. God did not forget me 
in my pain and suffering. So your pain and suffering has a purpose. I don't want to minimize it at all. Secondly, we need to trust that God will use that suffering and that pain, not only for our good, but for His glory. For He tells us in Romans 8, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's God's promise to you and I. As He called out, Abraham, I'm going to conform you to the image of my Son. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. Those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he has glorified. God has a plan. And we need to trust that our suffering is part of that plan. And thirdly, God is ever faithful and worthy to be trusted. And I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 8. Let's end with a word of scripture, a word of encouragement. For God's providence is a doctrine that can be difficult to take. For it's much easier for us to consider that we have made our choices or that we're suffering the consequences of the sin of others. It's much easier to place that blame or to accuse someone else or make excuses for why we are the way we are. But in God's providence, we see that God has been working in His hand even before we were born. In Romans chapter 8, 31, as I say, God is ever faithful and worthy to be trusted. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who has died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Here's the key. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, of course not. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. These are the words that sustain us through God's providence. For I am sure, verse 38, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Would you trust in the providence of God? It doesn't mean that you don't make decisions, and you don't suffer the consequences, but even in those things, God's providential hand is moving us through the story until that day that we're glorified And we are made fully into His image. All part of God's plan for us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? For this moment, I'd like for you to pause, to consider what was said this morning, to pray and ask God, how would you want me to respond? And would you do so? Maybe you need to accept the providence of God. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness for doubting or accusing God's love for neglecting the things that are important. Maybe your mind and your heart has been set on the wrong things. Respond to Him, trusting in His goodness. Would you do so this morning? Father, you're a good God. And I pray that you continue this message during this week. Let it not end here, but let it permeate down through our soul. Lord, may we ask the very difficult questions 
may we come to accept and trust in your faithfulness that's demonstrated through your providential hand in our lives. Let us see your hand through our lives. It, it is hindsight. It's almost 2020, though all things may never be fully revealed to us, but let us trust in your goodness. Let us hold dear to the scriptures that says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither prison, addiction, betrayal, homelessness, whatever it may be, would you bring us through it so that you may be glorified and that we may become stronger in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.